Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. I have a periodic co-host on the show, Chris Knutson, who's not here with me today, but is periodically, so I'm flying solo. But I do have a pretty awesome topic for you today, which is seller-doer. I'm sure that that's a topic you heard of. And I also have a guest with us who was here back on episode 14, our most popular episode, Jim Rogers, who I'll introduce in a minute. But if you haven't heard the term seller-doer, it's a term that we hear all the time. Hiring managers contact us. Recruiters contact us. I'm looking for a civil engineer who is a seller-doer. And to that end, we actually created an entire training program with Jim Rogers, Chris and I. It's called the Seller-Doer Academy for Civil Engineers, which launched today at SellerDoerAcademy.com. We're so excited about it. But it made us think about that we need to do a series on the podcast on seller-doers. Because it's something that if you're an engineer and you want to get into the business side, you want to become a partner in a company, you pretty much need to be a seller-doer. So in this episode, we're going to define what a seller-doer is, and we're going to give you five stages through an acronym that Jim developed to walk you through becoming a seller-doer. And you can kind of pick up whatever stage you're at, which is the way that we kind of crafted this episode. So before we dive into the interview here with Jim to lay out these five stages, let me just take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI. If you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI. They are the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use the promo code CIVIL, that's C-I-V-I-L, at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI the number two, pass.com, and use the promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. And again, PPI, these are the books, programs that I used to pass my exams and jumped into their online module and tested it all out before we took them on as a sponsor, of course. And it's phenomenal. It's very easy to use. So definitely support PPI because they are a big supporter of the program and they allow us to keep it free for you. All right. So with that, let's start talking about seller doers with Jim Rogers. Let's jump into today's civil engineering conversation. Civil engineering podcast. Civil engineering podcast. Now it's time for this week's civil engineering conversation where we talk with a professional in the AEC industry who's had success in their field. And we're talking with someone today, Jim Rogers, who you, if you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard him before. Jim is the author of Win More Work, How to Write Winning AEC Proposals. He helps professional services clients win more work. He's a consultant, speaker, author, and sales presentation coach. Engineers hire him to help build their authority and to help them prepare proposals and presentations that seal the deal. And as I said before, Jim was on episode 14 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the most popular episode, which was, again, focused on proposal writing and writing better proposals. And I want to welcome Jim back to the show. Jim, welcome back. Thanks, Anthony. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have Jim to be here today because we are launching kind of a new training program together, Christian, Jim, and myself called the Seller Doer Academy for Civil Engineers. So 
in light of that new program, what we wanted to do today is talk a little bit about seller doers. What are seller doers? And we're going to go through the five stages of seller doer activities. And this is something that we get all the time, Chris and I, we get emails from recruiters, hiring managers. I'm looking for a seller doer for my firm. We're looking to hire a few seller doers. And that's why we kind of put our heads together and said, listen, we can't find all these seller doers, so let's help companies uh, develop them, right? I mean, right. <laughs> that's kind of always a good solution. So, so before I, I kick it over to Jim here. They're, Anthony, they're expensive. Yeah, you're right, Jim. Right? See, it's like a farm team in baseball. What do you want to do? Do you want to go out and pay top dollar for for the most experienced people? And that works for some. I don't know if you're a Yankees fan or not. It has worked for them in some years and not in others. And then their teams like – I don't know, the Braves who put a lot of emphasis on bringing people up through the minor leagues and develop them that way, creating some loyalty and, you know, investing in developing the talent. Yeah, it's like supply and demand. You know, there's not a lot of them out there, so they are costly. And the thing about hiring seller doers, too, is you're bringing someone in who I'm sure has good skills, then they got to familiarize themselves with your organization, your clients, the way you work. And so kind of growing your own seller doers could be a very powerful idea. And that, that's how we got into it. And when I say seller doer, when you think about the term seller doer, we use it to describe professionals who are highly capable of delivering client work and are now ready to take a more active role in growing the business. So that's what CEOs of civil engineering companies are telling us is that we're we're not looking for engineers that can just do the work. We want them to we want them to be able to do high quality work and deliver it, but we also want them be, to be able to go and get more work, whether it's through the existing clients, which happens often, or it's by getting out there and finding new clients. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. And to do that, Jim's got a pretty cool acronym that we're going to walk through. Jim, why don't you take them through the acronym first and then we could dive into it. Yeah, the acronym is RLOCK. So R-L-O-C-K, which I like to think of as revenue lock, locking in that revenue. And that's not what the R stands for. So I'm going to hopefully not confuse people when I say take you through these and tell you what RLOCK really stands for. To me, there are five stages in the business development life cycle or in your client life cycle that help kind of compartmentalize these and put them into buckets. So you can think about the activities that you perform in each one of those stages. And then we'll talk a little bit about the skills that support the activities in each one of those. And as we're talking through these, think about what you do today and how it may fit in there or how what you're you know on the immediate horizon, let's say in the next year or two, what you might be asked to do. And then think about longer in your career as you become an experienced rainmaker, maybe more of a doer seller, meaning your billable hours shrink as you take more responsibility for developing business in the firm. See if you can kind of picture how the balance may shift as you develop more confidence and skill and growth throughout your career. So here's our lot. So R, recognition. L, leads. Three, opportunities. Four, close. Five, keep. So let me take you back through that one and give you a brief definition. Then we'll talk about the activities that fit into each one. So one, recognition. Recognition to me is really being known for something and having familiarity. You might actually even think about it this way. Recognition equal authority equals authority plus familiarity. Second, leads, which is your ability to go out and identify and nurture leads, you know, prospects that are qualified, they're in your target markets, or it could, you know, be networking to be able to get to people who can get you to the right person or another organization. So all the activities around getting out there 
and then collecting business cards, but qualifying them and then being able to manage those, stay in touch with people over time so that you're building familiarity with them. Because as you build familiarity, you're building trust at the same time. Uh, the opportunity is really an opportunity to me is different from a lead. An opportunity becomes an opportunity when there's a budget for a project, there's authority to spend that budget. So there's clearly a need for the project and there's a timeline or there's a time frame. Some people refer to that phrase as BANT. But so there's a real deal, even if it's not completely funded, but you're pretty sure that the budget's there and that there's going to be a date when either they're going to select somebody to do the work or start the work. Those two things better be tied together pretty closely, we hope. So that's what an opportunity is when you go from a lead to an opportunity. Now you're starting to manage and make go-no-go decisions, whether you're going to pursue. Some people call it a pursuit, I guess, whether you're going to pursue that piece of work or not. And then if you are, how are you going to push that thing through the pipeline, position yourself for the sale and get ready to close, which is the C. To me, closing is responding to you know, if it's a sole source deal, it's asking for the business and closing right there without going through a formal procurement process. But closing for people that do government work or work with large organizations that have a formal procurement process, there's going to be a proposal involved. And maybe it's a written proposal and they select off that basis, or it could be a two-stage process where there's a written proposal and an interview presentation, or maybe just an interview presentation based on a response to qualifications that you've submitted, which may not feel like a full-blown proposal, just a, you know, are we qualified to do the work? So that's, that's closing the business. And then the, the last stage is keeping the client, which hopefully your listeners, Anthony, are becoming good at delivering good quality service to their clients. And that's going to help keep them. But there's another stage as you mature in your career, or there's another level of sophistication here that's going to lead to more business, which is part of keeping that client is becoming a trusted advisor to them, which means that they're going to come to you first for advice. You're going to hear about these opportunities before your competitors do. So part of serving the client is not just delivering quality deliverables, you know, design documents or managing to schedule. It's going to be more than that. It's going to be, how do you keep those clients by deepening and nurturing those relationships and to me, I think of that as the difference between being a, uh, to, to really grow the business, being a trusted advisor as opposed to an order taker. An order taker is just the client coming to you and say, hey, you know, can we write this task order? Can you do this work? Yeah, we're available. We can do that work right up our alley. That's an order taker. It's like, do you want fries with that <laughs> at, at McDonald's? Yeah. And so you're just taking an order as opposed to being more consultative in your career. And you don't always have that early in your career, but you develop it. You know, in your, if you've had, got 10 years of 15 years of experience, you're becoming a trusted advisor for your client. Probably have a personal relationship with them that may sit within the walls of, of your work and serving them, but might sometimes float outside into doing stuff outside the work context. But let me stop there. So that's our lock recognition leads opportunities, closing and then keeping those clients. And now what we're going to do is, is we're going to dive into these different stages one at a time here. I'll let Jim jump into them. Let's deconstruct it. What I'll do is I'll also try to add some experiences from my civil engineering career that ties in specifically to these different stages. So, Jim, let's jump into recognition. Yeah, good point, Anthony, because full disclosure here, I am not a civil engineer. I was a software engineer and, you know, I was an okay software engineer, but I think we learned along the way and 
developing business for my state and local government clients that I was a whole lot better at writing proposals and doing what people think of as traditional business development, making rain. And, but um, I now do this exclusively for civil engineers and part of having that outside industry experience, I think helps, you know, bring a little fresh perspective to your civil engineer. So I'm glad that four or five years ago, I dedicated myself exclusively to helping your kind of engineers, Anthony, but I did want to make sure that people know that I'm not a civil engineer. So I'm going to lean on you, Anthony. I'm ready to come up with some examples here. So recognition, I think I said that a good way to define this is authority plus familiarity. So if you have some authority, but you don't have a lot of familiar, people aren't familiar with you, it means you haven't been out there enough. And if you have familiarity, maybe people do know you from doing work or from being at conferences, but you're not the one that's seen as a not applying to speak at those conferences, whether it's blogging or writing articles for trade journals, whatever, or speaking, whatever it is. If you're not getting your authority out there, then you're, you don't really have recognition. So you can't just have it. you got to share it with the world. And Anthony, you're doing this today. You blog, you write articles, you do this podcast. And I think without a doubt, people would recognize you as an authority and the world of helping engineers engineer their own success is the title of your book. So give us some examples about how, you, how you've done that. I'll give you a couple of examples. First of all, an example from, you know, obviously what we're doing with engineering, career coaching, coaching. I mean, that's just the idea of branding yourself as an expert in that field and then putting yourself in front of people in that field, whether it's blogging, whether it's using LinkedIn to get to the right groups, and whether it's going to the right conferences and presenting, kind of like Jim said. But taking it one step further, I mean, as a civil engineer, some of the things that you can do that can be really helpful, for example, is if there's a new guideline that came out, like let's say a new guideline that's going to dictate real estate development in your town or in your county, then you could learn those guidelines, put together a presentation that would summarize the new guidelines, and then you could go to like the local real estate association and say, listen, we're running a free lunchtime session, brown bag lunch on some of the new real estate development guidelines in this zone or, or whatever the case may be. We would love to have for you to market this to your members. Again, it's completely free to them and they're going to get the information. And I think that's a way that you can make yourself Give yourself that expert, that recognition. You didn't write the guidelines, but you are aware of them. You're learning about them because they're critical to your business and you're educating your client or prospective client base on these regulations. And that does a couple things. One, for people that don't know you, it immediately puts you in the light of an expert. But for those people that do know you already, your existing clients, like Jim said, it's going to more make them think about, okay, I've got to consult with Anthony before we even buy the property because he knows all these regulations and he can help us figure that out on the due diligence end of it. And if you get that part of the job, then many of you know that the odds of getting the actual design work are going to go up tremendously. So things like that, where you get creative and you get the clients in the office, you get people seeing you present on topics that are critical to their business and their bottom line, that helps you to build authority and get that level of expertise. That's a very good example of, of one way to go about it. What do you think about taking your expertise to, let's say, an ASCE conference or some other technical event and not just, you know, prospective buyers? Here's something that I, I think of in working with my clients is if you talk to an engineer, let's say they're a drainage engineer 
right? That's what their specialty is, technical specialty. They'll say, ah, well, you know, there are lots of other drainage engineers that do what I do. I just happen to be, I have 20, 30 years of experience and I'm really good at it and people know me, but there are a dozen engineers in my city who do the same thing and I have nothing new to say. What would you say to them about sharing their expertise with others? That is the case all the time. I mean, obviously there's going to be hundreds of other people potentially that do what you do in the civil engineering world, but how many of them are getting themselves out there and putting themselves on that stage as an expert? And what Jim said, like going to an ASCE conference or a technical conference, I know engineers will sometimes say, well, what's the point of presenting in front of a lot of other engineers? Well, there is a point. I mean, the civil engineering industry is a very heavy teamwork industry, meaning that in one respect, a company might be competing with you. In another respect, they may be hiring you to do the drainage for their project. So when you're out there at these conferences, putting yourself up on stage as a drainage expert, I've seen cases where a company has their own drainage department, but they hire another company to do it for multiple reasons. One, they might need to satisfy some kind of DBE or some kind of other portion of the contract. But secondly, they might not have that specific expertise. So if they see you doing a presentation on a specific type of subsurface drainage system that you have expertise in and they don't, again, you start to become a real expert in that type of system, which can open up a lot of doors for you. So there's plenty of reasons to get up in front of both your colleagues as well as your prospective clients And really, every aspect of getting out there is going to build that level of recognition, maybe just in a couple different arenas, but all around the same service or product that you're focused on and that you're an expert in. Right. You could also, I guess, and you can help me out with my not being a civil engineer of this example, but I was thinking about something a client did, which is let's say you know something about creating wetlands or, you know, maybe this comes into green design and creating collection a way to collect water, right? And so maybe you've created a a wetlands in an urban environment. So the extent that you can be specific and say, you know, creating wetlands in an urban environment or in an urban park or whatever it is, you're going to have a hook that gets some attention that brings some people in, even if they're not going to do that themselves. But as other engineers, they may be interested in how you did it there, broadening their horizons. That's also a good topic to go talk to parks and recs about and find out where those people go for their professional association and talk about creating a wetlands in an urban park. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the niching it down is great. You can always niche it down and continue to get more specific. And again, that narrows the field, right? Because the more niche you go, there's the less people that know how to do that. One of the things that I did was I worked with a certain kind of septic system when I was doing design engineering, and it was a pretty new system. And I was one of the few engineers that really knew about it or knew how to design it. And it really limited the size of the field. So it gave us a lot of projects that people wanted to use that. They didn't have a lot of open space on the site. So things like that can be extremely helpful. You just got to get out there, though. The bottom line is like when you say seller doer, like, yeah, the doer, of course, we're talking about doing the engineering work. But also just a doer is someone that just gets out there. So like there could be 10 people with your expertise, but not all of them are going to get out there to conferences put on these webinars and seminars that we're talking about. But if you take the initiative and you do it, that's a huge part of being a seller doer is action. Anthony, you nailed it. I think it's just get out there because there are going to be people who are loath to do it. And so if you're the one that's out there, it doesn't matter how many other people have the expertise. You're the one that gets the recognition. Let's jump into the next point. Number two leads. Yeah. So our lock recognition then leads is really, you know, what are you doing to network or research 
try to figure out based on your business strategy and the markets that you want to penetrate, how much are you learning? Some of this has to do with research, right? Strategy. But once you've figured out what your target markets are, and maybe even down to the target organization, then what are you doing to get out there and find those people and get in front of them? Or if not, if it's hard to get face-to-face, one-on-one with your primary target, who in your network can get you there? And that's where the networking, we'll talk about the front end of this first, which is going out and gathering those leads. And then we'll talk a little bit about, and maybe Anthony, we can split this up. You could talk more about being out in the events. And I can talk a little bit about what you can do to nurture those leads so that when an opportunity arises, you're on their list of people that they're thinking about. So talk a little bit about some of the things that, and I know you've done when you were a civil engineer, not only did you do existing business development, mining your existing clients for new opportunities to grow those accounts, but you also were doing new business development as well. Tell me how you got into that and what did you do to bring leads into your firm? Yeah, I mean, the company I worked at was really good about preaching the idea of getting out there, meeting people, trying to find new leads for new business. And and I just kind of did it. And I went out and I, I went to different meetings, like I referenced before, the whether it was like a realtor's meeting, I was in land development, it was a chamber of commerce where there were a bunch of business owners there. And I would just get out there and I would, I, I really took the approach, Jim, of just, you know, the Dale Carnegie kind of just get to know people get to talk to them, get to learn about their hobbies, their business interests, how their business worked. And then where I could in a conversation, I would add value. And if they said something like, oh, we're having a problem with our site because of this, I would just try to add value. I wasn't trying to sell them right there. And I think that that's a little bit of a trap people get into. And I guess you could talk about this a little bit on the nurturing. But the bottom line is, is I think when you go to these events, you want to go there with the idea of where can I add value to the conversation? Where can I add value to the people that I meet as opposed to I'm going to this dinner event and I need to come out of there with a project? I think that's spot on. You know, I think you started to hit on the delineation between a lead and an opportunity. So many people think that they may be going out networking to find opportunities, but what you're really finding are people and the opportunities will flow from that. So if you really think about meeting people and connecting with them as human beings and as professionals, then the second part of what we were going to talk about, which is nurturing, really starts to become easier for you if you do one other thing. So in terms of nurturing and staying in contact with people and not annoying them, which, which is kind of important so that you're not a nuisance, you know, think about spamming. I mean, there's, there are other versions of spamming before email came about which is just picking up the phone and calling and saying, hey, you know, how's it going? You got anything coming down the pike, you know, which is more self-serving, right? You're calling to stay in touch with that person because you might get something out of it. Now, hey, business is business and we're all big boys and girls and understand that that's part of what has to happen. You have to sell something before you get to do anything. But if you take the mindset, the approach that you're there to serve that person before they're your client, before that there's a clear opportunity. So if you happen to be in conversation with somebody and they were interested in uh, wetlands and that wasn't your area of expertise, you might go back to your firm. If there was somebody who did, you'd say, hey, is there any, let me tell you about this person I met. Is there anything we can send them that might help them with this problem that they're able to solve? Or if you're a voracious reader and maybe voracious is too big of a term, but reading and staying on top of what's going on and maybe even putting a, I won't talk about this, how to do this, Anthony, but 
using a Google alert to find articles that are coming out about a particular topic. You know, I have a client that has LIDAR for, what is it, light detection and ranging, the 3D laser scanners. He has LIDAR alert set up in Google. And when articles come out, he reads them. And when he thinks about people that he's met, he feeds something of interest he thinks may interest the client. He forwards that to him in an email. Yeah. Or you could even print these articles out if you read it in a trade journal, highlight or underline some key phrases, write some notes in the margin, slap a cover, a handwritten note on the top of it, put it in the mail, snail mail. Because what you're doing is you're delivering something of value to that person. So anything that you can do to help make that person successful, whether or not it leads to business for you is very powerful. Actually, I'd seen some research and I'll get the number wrong, but I think it's something like 60% of referrals to other people will come from people who've not done business with you and may not even know you at all. They may know you as a, they've seen your, your name enough, you have some recognition, they may have heard you speak, and they may just refer you to somebody else who asks for a referral, even if they've never done business with you. So, if you're sending these follow-up notes to people and the need comes up with somebody else that's not that person that you're in contact with, there's a really good chance you'll get a referral out of it. And that's the power of networking. In our Seller Doer Academy for Civil Engineers, which we're actually launching today, our second session in April, I'm going to be doing one on networking. And I'm going to get into exactly what Jim talked about, which is doing the outreach to these people. Even when you don't have a project or you're not looking for work, you're keeping them informed you will reach out to them. We'll have some templates and stuff, but basically you're going to reach out to them and say, hey, I found this information, thought it might be good for you. And again, you're building up that authority in your mind that we talked about a little bit with these people when you do stuff like that. And that's that's what makes a really good seller-doer, in my opinion, is you're always thinking about your first thought is how do I provide value? That's where you have to start. Absolutely. One of the other elements of leads that I won't talk about here because this could be like a two-day workshop is how do you create a system for maintaining those leads? I mean, people used to use a Rolodex and then have a tickler file for when to follow up with people on certain things and real good business development professionals, people that are seller doers or doer sellers, depending on what your split of sell versus do is, created their own system for doing that. Some, you know, there are CRM systems like Salesforce.com or Dell Tech Vision that people use to do this. Sometimes it's more than what a, a seller doer needs. Creating a, an Excel spreadsheet or maintaining it in, a, in your contact management system like Outlook or index cards. One, one example I heard somebody use was having stacks of hundreds and hundreds of index cards where they would write a name and a phone number and they kept them in the car with them. They were on a long drive between client sites or their office and a client site. They could kind of flip at a stoplight in a safe place, Anthony. Yeah. I want to make sure, reinforce yeah. that they were not doing this while they were driving 80 miles an hour on the on the interstate, but have a couple of those cards handy to be able to make those phone calls and get some work done in the car. And so it doesn't have to be fancy. It just has to be your system, something that you that works for you that you can follow through and, and nurture those leads. Sometimes it may, may just be calling somebody to stay in touch. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely, yeah. But sometimes it's making that offer of help, whether or not you're going to send an invoice for that help. You know, you may not use a complex system at this stage of your career, depending on where you're at. But even some people are using LinkedIn now because LinkedIn has these note sections on the contacts. So there's all different ways you can do it. But like Jim said, you just got to come up with the system that works for you to identify those leads, nurture them. And that's going to then bring us into the third piece of the acronym, which is 
opportunities. Yeah. And one last thought on that for opportunities is go find out who the rainmakers are in your firm and go ask to tell you about their system because they're probably not going to offer it. And some of them won't even understand how to describe it because it works for them or wouldn't think to describe it because it works for them. And they would think, oh, well, that wouldn't work for anybody else. I ought to ask somebody, you know, what do you do to stay in touch with people? I have one client who the first thing he does when he gets into work at 7.30 is he writes one note, handwritten note on a note card, puts it in the mail to somebody. So he doesn't do anything else until he does that. And it's a real easy thing to do to stay in touch with people. It could be a thank you note. I'm happy to know you. I'm glad we do business together. Or, you know, it's been a while. Why don't we grab lunch? But that handwritten note is super powerful in this email world that we have today and texting world that we have today. So opportunities, I talked about opportunity, meaning, you know, it's a real deal. It's a project that's going to be funded. It's coming down the, down the pike. We may spend less time talking about this than anything else, but I think one thing that people fail to think about when they're developing opportunities is the, the human side of the opportunity. It's real easy to get locked into focusing on the technical solution that needs to be designed, you know, as a design engineer or somebody in construction. It's super easy to think about, you know, what does the owner need in terms of, of design, the product that we need and the, what we're going to deliver design documents for. And they miss terrific opportunities to build trust and cement the relationship and maybe get information that your competitors aren't going to get by asking other questions like, you know, how did this project come about? Who else is involved? What's your role in that project? You know, is there any opposition to the project that we should know about? So asking some of those softer questions, and there's one, uh, there are dozens of these, but there's one question that I encourage people to ask. And Anthony, you and I were on a call earlier today, and I, you heard me ask this question, which is, what would keep you from hiring us to do this work? It's a scary question in a way because you're opening yourself to feedback that you may not want to hear. Or, you know, you feel vulnerable in asking it, but you can't manage what you can't see. So if you don't know the answer to that question, you can't address an objection. So instead of saying, you know, either skirting around it, not finding out what some of the issues or liabilities you may have are, you hope that they come up. Or if you say, do you have any other questions? And they, that's a closed-ended question itself. They might say no. But instead, if you ask that question, you know, what would keep you from hiring us? They may say, well, look, you know, we think you're small, too small. We're worried about the risk. Then maybe you need, no, you need to go out and get a big boy teaming partner, right? That you hadn't thought about teaming with somebody else because you need that insurance policy in the form of a big firm because nobody ever gets fired. You usually gets fired from hiring a big name firm, but, you know, they're worried about that risk hiring a smaller firm or oh, we're worried about the expense of bringing your experts in from out of town. Then maybe you have another solution. So, well, what if we held some of these meetings by conference call instead? Then you're starting to create a relationship and a conversation with the client. Let them help shape how the work gets done and how they might work with you and answer their own, resolve their own problems that they have with any concerns that they may have about you. The only piece that I'll add is that, that I'm always thinking about from the engineering side when, when I was doing this, and the opportunity side of it is, is like we talked about a little bit before is like Jim talked about making the cold calls and reaching out to people on the leads part of it. If you do all that and you continue through these stages, the opportunities will start coming to you. Like we talked about before, someone will call you up and say, hey, listen, we're bidding on a project and 
we know you have a lot of expertise in this field. We'd like to have you on the team for this, or we want to put you in. And listen, there were times at the company I worked for where we could get multiple teams on the same proposal putting us in for our expertise. So then you're increasing your chances of getting a job. Plus, you're getting these opportunities to come to you without having to do these cold calls because now you really establish yourself as an expert and you've nurtured the leads that you've had to become that advisor role like Jim talked about. And then the opportunities start to come to you. So it really starts to work kind of like a machine if you follow the different stages. You're talking about teaming is uh, reminds me of a question that comes up. So people will ask me this and I'll say it's a business decision because I'm not an engineer and I can't really advise them on this, but they're like, you know, when should we team and when should we not team? My answer to that would be is if you're not sure, you should be asking the client, right? Right. And the question could be, you know, do you, do you expect us to propose on this work might be one. And if they say yes, then they're making a little bit of a head nod, emotional commitment to you that might pay off down the road. But then you might, you know, also say, well, we were thinking about putting together a team to do this, is this something you would trust us to do on our own or would you expect to see a team? What do you think makes more sense for you? So again, you're giving the, the client converse, uh, some control over the conversation and over the shaping of the, the deal and the team. And any chance you get a chance to do that, you're really being putting yourself in a trusted advisor role because you're making it about them and you're acknowledging that it's the client's solution, not yours. And that goes very far in building trust with folks. So I didn't have much else to say about opportunities. I just wanted to kind of dance around the, or not dance around, but touch on this notion that you need to ask questions that are not just about the technical solution, but about the people that are going to be involved. That's a critical component. All right, let's jump into the next one, Jim, close. (laughs) There's so many different paths to closing the sale. We'll, We'll just pick one. I'll talk a little bit about I'll talk a little bit about proposal writing as opposed to closing on an immediate opportunity that may be a sole source opportunity, which for me is just asking the questions about the process, which is, you know, do you have to compete this? Does this have to go to competitive bid? If they say, well, you know, we're really, we're thinking we're, we're going to have to say, well, so what are your decision criteria? Make sure you understand the process and help them think that through. They may end up saying, you know what, maybe we don't. If we keep this under a hundred thousand dollars, It'll be our discretion and we could sole source it instead of competing it. So that's all I had to say about closing the sale but, uh, in terms of a sole source opportunity. But in closing business, there's very often a proposal has to be a part of it. And, you know, other than shamelessly promoting my book, Win More Work, How to Write Winning, proposals, which I recommend as a starter for people who may just be learning how to write proposals because it'll set you out on the right path, even if you're not the executive who's going to sign that proposal and ultimately own it, you're going to know sometimes know more than your boss if you've read the book and they haven't, and you're going to be able to deliver something to them, even if it's just a resume or project description, it's going to be compelling. The key thing about proposal writing is realize you're telling a story. And so whether it's telling a story about a similar project, whether it's about telling your story as a professional in a resume or in a cover letter telling the story of why the, you believe the client should hire you, storytelling is an essential component of it. A second essential component is to make sure that the emphasis is always on the client and not about yourself. Typically, people will start a cover letter or executive summary or even an approach section by saying, you know, we've been in business for 40 years. We have offices in three states and we do XYZ disciplines. We're a multidisciplinary firm. 
yada, yada, yada. You've already bored the client. They're trying to figure out how to skip over your puffery and get to something that has to do with them because they're not ready to listen to you talk about yourself unless you have demonstrated that you understand the client and their problem in some way. So the biggest advice I have for people in a written proposal or in an interview presentation is make sure that in the first paragraph, couple of minutes of a presentation, the first couple of paragraphs of an executive summary is to have nothing at all about yourself. Make it all about the client and about what it's going to take for them to be successful. Then insert yourself and tie what you do specifically back to how you're going to make them successful. So if you can put them first and show that you're, what you offer is in service of them instead of just a recitation of your credentials and some puffery about why you're the best, the best fit. And I would try to go back and scrub that word from your, your proposal to say that you're the best anything because you can't substantiate it. There's no evidence of that. To the extent that you can get rid of that kind of language, you're making it about the client. They're going to love you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I can't add anything to that. I think Jim kind of nailed that that down. So let's go on to the final point here, Jim, which is to keep these clients retained. Talk a little bit about that. You know, one of the themes that kind of weaves all the way through the five different stages is trust, right? I don't like to see that word show up in proposals, but you're really building trust by demonstrating that you're there to serve the client. And because I'm not a civil engineer, I'm not exactly sure how that plays out, you know, day to day in those meetings with clients. But I know what it was like in my world as a, as a software engineer and, you know, clearly you got to deliver the goods. So the, the triple constraints of budget, scope, and, and schedule are clearly a part of it. But there's this other wraparound that kind of per- permeates everything else that you're doing, which is, do you answer your phone on the first ring? Or if you don't, can't answer it because you're in a meeting, do you get back to them within 24 hours? Or if you're in a meeting with them, do you silence your cell phone? So, uh, and when they call... When they call the office and they reach somebody else, you know, are they doing everything that they can do to help them get an answer to what they need and not just say, can I put you through to voicemail? You know, is there somebody else who can help you get an answer to your problem if they can't reach Anthony? Would Jim be able to help you? So are they actually trying to help that client solve a need, solve a problem and meet their needs? So there's so much stuff that falls into that. But I I don't know, Anthony, do you have an example you can think of or something you've done in the past that doesn't just have to do with delivering what they're paying for, but that wraps around, kind of puts a bow on what you're delivering for them? Well, I think one of the things that's a good way to keep clients is, and there's a lot of things, I won't go into them all today, just so everyone knows, this is going to be a series, so we're going to dive into some of these points in more detail because obviously there's tons of things we could talk about on these points, but let me give you one quick example the company that I worked for, one of the big things that our CEO preached was responsiveness, just being super responsive to people, especially clients. And really that became like that extra that Jim's talking about. That was like the reason people started hiring us because they said that we were much more responsive than other firms, that they would have to wait a few days or they'd have to wait a week when their other engineers were busy for them to get back to them with some kind of an answer, we would just really focus on being super responsive. And it was drilled home to us throughout our company, responsive, responsive, responsive. It doesn't always mean that you need to call them back right away with the answer, but at least getting back to people 
just made him feel like, like Jim was saying, made him feel like, you know, you really appreciated them and you, they were important to you. And things like that can be these things that you do that other people don't do. And it really has nothing to do with your technical knowledge. Everybody could have the same technical knowledge, but if you're doing things like being responsive, some of the other things Jim talked about where you're sending them articles and stuff like that, these things all add up and that makes you become really liked by the person, really trusted by the person and really the trusted advisor that we've been talking about. And those words, trusted advisor, keep coming up. It's a pattern throughout this episode. Absolutely. All right. So that kind of concludes the acronym RLOC. We went through the, the five different steps. What we're going to do now is I'm going to just give you a brief word from our sponsor for today's episode. Then we're going to we're going to come back. We're going to summarize our lock and we're going to talk a little bit about how this might vary for you depending on the stage of the career that you're in. And we'll kind of round out the episode. So first, let me offer a quick spot here from our sponsor, PPI. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. Hands down, I recommend PPI. I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, as I mentioned earlier on, and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses. It's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code CIVIL at ppi2pass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com and use promo code civil for a 20% discount. All right. So now what we're going to do is we're just going to run back through briefly through the five points of the acronym RLOC and just summarize each one of them. So Jim, I'll fire them off to you and you give us a couple of, of closing points here. The first one was our recognition. Right. So remember recognition equals authority plus familiarity. So if you have some authority. Don't be insecure that this is not going to matter to other people. If you're out there doing it, you're going to have more familiarity and visibility than your competitors are. That could be writing articles for a blog or a written publication, writing white papers, speaking at conferences. Number two was L for leads. So leads, one of the important things is to make sure that you understand what your target markets are and doing some research so that when you do build you're networking at events or staying in touch with people, you know that you're spending your time on the, the people that are most relevant for you, but that you're also delivering information for them that's going to sustain that relationship and make them understand that you're there in service of them. The kind of the last point is create a system and your firm may have one or may have some technology. If they don't, don't worry about it. Spreadsheets, the old fashioned Rolodex, tickler file, index cards might work great for you. Number three, opportunities. Sure. Uh, the key point there is really to go beyond the understanding what the technical solution is and make sure you understand what the people concerns, values are, and also testing for your strengths and liabilities. If you can get somebody to tell you what a weakness is, it lets you address it. And then if they, uh, they themselves reinforce what they see your strengths are, they've made us an emotional commitment to you that's going to stick in their minds, in their guts when they're ready to make a decision later. For C, close. Closing, one of the key things is to learn about persuasion and how to make that come across in your written proposals and your presentations. Making it about your client and then telling a good story, being able to make sure that you're putting people in your story and uh, writing similar projects in your resume, even just your resume, 
something that somebody that doesn't have total ownership of a proposal can do is make sure that you're telling your story and the work that you've done in a compelling way in written form as well as in a presentation. And the last piece of it is keep. Keeping those clients. So it's not just about the deliverables and the quality of the work that you're doing. It's everything that wraps around that, every touch point that the client has with you or anybody else in your firm. So if when people reach the receptionist, they're not getting the best service that they can, you bring that up with the partnership, bring that up internally and saying, I'm not sure that we're doing the best job that we can every time a client tries to reach us and make sure that you're thinking about every touch point with the client. So there's your acronym RLOCK. And just to kind of, as we close out here, just think about it is that obviously all of our listeners are at different stages of their civil engineering careers meaning that you may be working on different stages of this right now. For example, like the keeping, the keep or the close, you may not be working on those right now. You may be focused more on getting to know the clients, delivering that value to them, or you might even be just at the starting point, which is building up that authority and recognition, which is absolutely critical. It's a foundation for this whole process. So just understand that these are the five stages. You might be at one of them now. Take your time on it. Get it done properly. We're going to have all of this information laid out for you on the show notes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. This is episode 27. You can view this in bulleted points. You can leave a comment at the bottom and Jim or I will respond to that comment with some feedback or some answers to whatever questions you might have to the best of our abilities. And just keep in mind that if you follow these stages, you are going to become this seller doer and you are going to have a distinct advantage in the civil engineering industry. And as we close out here, I do just want to mention the new program that Jim, Christian, and I launched, which is the Seller Doer Academy for Civil Engineers, which you can find at sellerdoeracademy.com. And essentially, what we're going to be doing is over a period of time is we're going to be helping civil engineering professionals create this, become seller doers, go through these stages. And right now, at this time, the academy is open to companies, not individuals. But what we will say is, If you think that your company is a good candidate, if you think your company would be interested, then shoot an email to me at anthony at sellerdoeracademy.com and we can talk a little bit about how you can get involved. Just to get an idea, some of the the topics that we cover is we're going to talk about writing superior proposals. We're going to talk about networking. We're going to talk about communication with your clients. We're going to go through a lot of the skill sets that relate to these five stages that Jim and I just discussed. So we're really excited about it. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, people want seller doers in their company, but they're either really hard to find or they're really expensive. So this is an opportunity for civil engineering companies to grow seller doers in-house and get the culture of these five stages infused into the company so that people are walking around with these things on their mind. And that's just going to eventually lead to that kind of aggressive entrepreneurial approach to civil engineering. I think that's how companies win from what I've seen. All right, everyone, we will see you on the next episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes at episode 27. And until then, we wish you all the best in your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. 
Now is the time to engineer your own success. 